You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, you can take out your scriptures again. Let's head to Romans chapter 3 as we look at this passage in verse 21 once again. Look at kind of the last part of it. We left off kind of midway last week. Romans 3, verse 21. You can turn there. We'll read it in just a minute. Got a couple pictures from last week. One is from Gemma. So Gemma caught this from that familiar verse, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is our plight. That is our problem. That is what Paul has been hammering on through all this. We all are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. Throats are open. Graves, lips, mouth, everything tainted by sin. And then we get to these verses here in verse 21 and 26 and the hope of what God gives. So thank you, Gemma, for that picture and everybody that's drawing and turning those in and paying attention as you as you listen to the sermon. I love, again, that children, you are with us and you are as much part of our worship time and to listen in as you can and uh, learn from this time. Hopefully by now you found Romans 3, verse 21. I'm going to read it again. We were here last week, and let me read through verse 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray again. Father, the task before us right now is to hear from your word, discern what is here, and to worship you in light of it. And so, Lord, I do want to pray once again, would your, would your spirit graciously work within our hearts as we go over what is in this passage? Lord, work in each heart that is here, including the preachers. Show us again your great mercy, your great glory in this salvation story and what we have before us. So lead us along, O Lord. May we leave here not the same as we came, challenged, worshiping, and in fact ready to go share this good news to a world in darkness. Help us now in this moment, in this hour. In Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I reported on a trip George and I made to Louisville to the Together for the Gospel conference, and one of the speakers there was Kevin DeYoung, and I wanted to share about him at that point, and then thought, well, somewhere, and when we get to these verses, I'm going to share something about what Kevin shared on justification, and we're kind of in that area last week, this week as well, and so it seems fitting to share some of that uh, as we're here. Um, he, he was speaking on the significance of justification, that idea of being declared righteous, not ours, an imputed righteousness from Christ, that justification 
And he said this in terms of the significance of justification. He said, we need the doctrine of justification because the world is awash in guilt. We need justification. Or you could say we need this passage and the scriptures because the world is awash in guilt. Guilt is everywhere. Guilt comes in many forms, and I don't think it's all godly guilt, but there's guilt going on. Uh, the guilt from society, maybe that you're not doing enough. You ought to be doing more. There's this need, or there's this problem here, and there's this across the, the, the globe, and then there's this locally, and, there's, and you just there is a weight of guilt. I can't get to all of these. Maybe you're not supporting the right cause. You don't have the right thing on your Facebook page. Or your company's not promoting the right thing uh, in its commercials. So maybe there's a guilt there. Or even lifestyles that are going on. The contrary. Perhaps, perhaps it's the affirmation of others that seeks to alleviate the guilt. Think of this affirmation that maybe you hear you know, a lot. Maybe people will say to other people, Oh, you're You're awesome. You are awesome, or, or you're doing great, or, or you just need to forgive yourself. Okay, we're going to see that's, that's something we can't do. That's a God thing that he must do, but, but that's kind of this, this encouragement. Or, or society itself, culturally, thinking of the, the godless part of culture, seeks enough legislation, enough normalcy, even in, in our culture, for, for this particular sin or lifestyle or thing to go away. If it's normal, if it's in the movies, if it's, if it's everywhere, then, then maybe that guilt that I'm feeling about that thing will kind of just go away if everybody agrees that it's okay. But it doesn't, and, and the guilt remains. And, and really, DeYoung's point is, is saying people are looking for someone, and this is, I think, all people, including us, or out there. We're looking for someone to say, you're okay. Someone to tell them they're okay. Now, the answer is justification. It's God's answer. But before it's the answer, as we've been looking in Romans, the, the problem must be correctly diagnosed. So those in sin might, might seek to justify that sin by the culture and the world around and, and by legislation being passed. And the Supreme Court says this, and so I guess it's okay. And, and they seek that justification for what's, I think, in the heart, that guilt. We've been looking at that. Uh, Romans 1 through 2. People know their true guilt before God. They know the law. It's written on the heart. But instead of looking to God, DeYoung would say they look to the world to give them moral absolution. Moral ab- They're looking to the world. Now, that's a big word. But they look to the world to give them moral absolution, meaning just a release from guilt. I'm, I'm feeling guilty. There's guilt, but... How do I resolve this? And without God, you're looking to the world to absolve you of that, of that guilt. But the world can never offer a justification, most importantly, before Almighty God. God's justifying work in Christ is the only solution for the problem of true guilt, right guilt before the Lord. Today's passage, along with what we looked at last week, speaks of this God who justifies sinners in Christ. Last week, we were kind of looking more at the idea of faith, kind of focused maybe if we said there was a focus towards, towards putting our faith 
by God's grace, in Christ. We talked about the, the thick ice of the of frozen lake and the stepping onto it. And it's not the stepping, it's, it's who you're stepping. It's the thick ice. It's Christ as the object of our faith. This week, we're examining then, we're, we're going back here to this passage to look at, I think what we could say is just the glorious mechanics. How does this, how does this grace come about? How is it God is just and He's righteous and yet we're forgiven and we're sinners and, and there's blood and Jesus' blood, and how does all this come together? And that's what we're looking at here in this passage. What is it about the death of Christ that can prove God just to declare sinners righteous in Christ? So let's head back. Now look at verse 24. We're kind of midway. I'm going to read 23 again, and then I'll take us into verse 24. So 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are, we looked at this last week, justified by His grace as a gift. Now we see, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption. Gracious justification, this this declaring of righteousness, is made possible how? The through. Through what? What means? Through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And Redemption has the idea, according to, you could probably look this up in multiple dictionaries, but one Greek lexicon, like a dictionary, says this of this word. Uh, can, we think of redemption as the buying back of a slave or captive. Perhaps somebody was in a war was taken captive. There's that purchasing back of that captive or that purchasing back of that slave or the, the making free by payment of a ransom. Making free by payment of a ransom. There's a sense of redemption that goes back to Israel's slavery in Egypt. And we're going to go to one place. I want you to turn to Ephesians, Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8. I think there's other places um, that we could look at. But let's go back to Exodus 6 in particular. And I want you to see this. So Exodus, we're back. Genesis, Exodus. Just go to the front of your Bible and come a little ways into it. You're going to be in Exodus before too long. Find a big number six, and I'm going to read from there. At this point in the narrative, we're kind of jumping right back. Where are we? We're Israelite. The Israelite people are slaves in Egypt. You know, Joseph brought them there, but but years and years, I think 400 have passed. And in fact, at this point in Exodus, none of the Israelites are, are super happy about Moses because Moses is starting to talk to to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's now laying down the law, and you, you're making bricks, well, now do it this way. And life is getting hard for them. And so the mission of Moses, who has been sent from God for, to deliver this people, it looks pretty doubtful. But look at what we read in Exodus chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 here. It says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. That is, the Israelites send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Boy, I just, I mean, don't we just need to hear that? But we'll go on. I am the Lord. How often do we need to hear that phrase? I am the Lord. Okay, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, 
the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. How will God ultimately here, how is he going to redeem his people? Through, with an outstretched arm, great acts of judgment. Ultimately, what's that going to lead to? There's, there's all the plagues going on, but ultimately there's going to be judgment and death in Egypt. Remember, death of the firstborn. It was the final straw that finally led Pharaoh to say, go, go. What about the Israelite firstborn? They all lived. Remember why? Because of the blood on the doorpost, because of the blood of the lamb, and it was put on the door. Thus, judgment passed over them. God redeems via great acts of judgment. And as we think about that, and we can come back to Romans chapter 3, God redeems through great acts of judgment. How is it God redeems sinners via the cross? Is it not that God's judgment and wrath is poured out on His firstborn, Jesus Christ, on the cross? Judgment indeed came down on the Son that we, by His blood, might be delivered out so we could be ransomed, redeemed from our slavery to sin as Israel was redeemed from their slavery in Egypt. And that's all pictured there in Egypt, this idea of judgment, the blood on the door, then passing through the waters of the Red Sea, and then even in the sacrificial system of the lambs and the bulls. The but now of Christ and His redemption, though, supersedes this exodus. It was, a, it was a shadow of what was to come, of the true Lamb of God who was coming to take away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. His redemption is magnificent and costly. Verse 25, if you're back in Romans 3 now, broadens our understanding of this redemption. What about this redemption then? It kind of fills it out a little bit more. Look at the first part of verse 25 that says, says of Christ here, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, before we get to this, maybe it's a hard word to, to spell. I don't know how, I wonder how many times I've gone back in my notes to re-spell propitiate. It's kind of like Philippians. A little challenging, but you can, you can work through it. But before we look at that word in, in particular, notice also two words here of how this propitiation took place. Whom God, two words, put forward. The idea of God putting forward Jesus as a propitiation. It's got a sense of God purposed this. Paul notes this. We looked at it in Sunday school this morning. Ephesians 1, this plan of salvation is according to to his, God's, purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10 says, as a plan for the fullness of time. 
So Christ then, here, this propitiation by his blood, whatever that means, and we're going to study that a little bit, but Christ is the outworking of this eternal plan and purpose of God. All in Christ, this redemption, it's according to plan. This is not plan B. This is the eternal plan of God. And this plan involves this word of the day here. We'll call it propitiation. Now, some translations, if you're reading in NIV, you've got sacrifice of atonement. I think there's maybe some interchangeability with sacrifice and the idea of atonement. Uh, Sacrifice for sin, maybe some have. Maybe maybe mercy seat. I don't think that's very common, but I think mercy seat was that part of that that covering on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the mercy seat before the Lord. So some translate it that way. But if you've got an NASB or a King James, I think many of you do, ESV, you've got propitiation. And I hope, if not already, we begin to cherish what this word means, that we ought to say, keep it in there. We all go, look at propitiation. What a big word. How can we understand it? Leave it in the Scriptures. Let's understand what's behind this. J.I. Packer wrote a book uh, called Knowing God. I hope maybe someday you'll read it, be encouraged to go through it. I've been going through it with our, with our boys here this, this past uh, spring. He devotes a whole chapter to this idea of propitiation, and so uh, there's a temptation to just open the chapter, and I'll just read it to you, but I'm not. I'm, I'm gleaning a few things from him. But he points out that this word propitiation actually shows up in about four passages of Scripture. You can find it. I think one is First John, and then I think in Hebrews, and I can't remember the other place it is. Four places. But he says, no, not just four. It's really all over. Here's the words he describes. He says, It can be seen in the words like reconciliation, redemption, sacrifice, self-giving, sin-bearing, or blood-shedding. Packer says all these thoughts have to do with the putting away of sin and the restoring of unclouded fellowship between man and God. Do you hear in there these ideas of what this propitiation means? The idea of putting away sin forgiveness. It also leads to a state of um, fellowship between man and God. Actual fellowship. So God's wrath here, the idea of God's wrath, is that it has been satisfied. We who are under it because of sin, in propitiation, the idea, it has been satisfied. And because it is satisfied, we may have unclouded, as Packer calls it, fellowship with God. He lists three facts of propitiation. I'll just go through those here. It says, one, propitiation is the work of God himself. We've kind of already seen that. That's who God put forward. Packer says, it was God himself who took the initiative in quenching his own wrath against those whom, despite their ill desert, not desert like chocolate cake, but I think they're, they're ill, they're, they're sinfulness, despite that, He loved them and had chosen to save them. You hear it in that familiar John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. That's the idea, this initiation of propitiation. But again, this giving is is not just simply a person of Christ to walk on the earth. The giving is the very death and the very punishment placed on this son on the cross in place of sinners. It's what we deserve. First John 4, 9-10, one of those four places says this, In this 
the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's again, manifest, probably revealed. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God initiated and accomplished the work of propitiation. Number two, propitiation was made by the death of Jesus Christ. So Packer says here, Paul already points to the death of Jesus as the atoning event and explains the atonement in terms of representative substitution. You know, they're big words, but to explain here, it says the innocent taking the place of the guilty. Who's the innocent? Jesus. Who's the guilty? Us, sinners. He takes the place in the name and for the sake of the guilty. And so he comes under the acts of God's judicial retribution. Passage from 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It happens through the death of Jesus on the cross. And then number three, propitiation manifests God's righteousness. It speaks to what we're going to find here just in the latter part of verse 25 and 26. We'll get to it in a minute. Packer says this. He says, Paul's point is that the public spectacle of propitiation, that public spectacle on the cross, he says, was a public manifestation not merely of justifying mercy on God's part, but of righteousness and justice as the basis of justifying mercy. And we'll talk about more of that in a bit. But notice that connected to propitiation in verse 25 is by his blood. There's a propitiation by his blood. It's connected there, the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of the sacrifice. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement. Interestingly, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's kind of the same word family as we find here in Romans 3 for propitiation. To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so Packer speaks of this Old Testament sacrificial system. Think of that, sacrificing the, the, the bull, the goat, the, the lamb. He says, representative substitution as the way and means of atonement was taught in typical form, like a type formed by the God-given Old Testament sacrificial system. There the perfect animal that was to be offered for sin was first symbolically constituted a representative by the sinners laying his hand on its head and so identifying it with him and him with it. And then it was killed as a substitute for the offerer, the blood being sprinkled before the Lord and applied to one or both of the altars in the sanctuary as a sign that expiation had been made, averting wrath, here it is again, and restoring fellowship. Now we know Hebrews would tell us that Old Testament sacrifice fell short. It could never truly cleanse because why? Because it was a type. It looked forward to the one who would come, the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, whose blood alone then can propitiate, be our representative, our substitute on that cross 
for our sins. And He can propitiate the wrath of Almighty God to us. And so Jesus Christ redeems sinners as a propitiation by His blood. And so lastly, we come to the second part of verse 25 and 26. And we find that in all of this, in all of what God is doing, He remains just, righteous. And in justifying sinners, God's justice remains. Look at the last part of verse 25. I guess the middle part of it. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Some of what's here is a bit hard to understand. Maybe you just read it and you're, okay, we were doing well. I got, I got blood provision. Now we're into forbearance and how does this, how does this all work? What, it, what does it mean here that God in his forbearance passed over former sins? I think it, maybe two ways here. I, I lean one way. Um, not altogether like firm in the ground, but I, I think I have a, a, a leaning here, but one way is it could it could point to a general forbearance of sins, just in a general sense. Um, even Packer points out kind of this idea of God's common grace that there was the flood and the destruction of the flood, and only seven eight were were saved through that. But that since then there's been no flood. Yes, there's been calamity, there's been corruption, but no flood like that. So there's a general sense of God's forbearance. I tend to think it's, it's a little more specific, and I, I hold this tentatively, but I think the comment here, what Paul is trying to, to focus on here is how is God just in dealing with, I think, of those of faith in the Old Testament? It's kind of that question, how were they saved in the Old Testament? Well, they, they weren't saved by the Lamb. They weren't saved by that blood. How were they saved? They were saved by faith, but, but this was before Christ ever came. So how was there any propitiation yet? He, he had not come yet. I think of Abraham. We're going to see him in chapter 4. Abraham says in Genesis 15, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Abraham was justified before God. And yet we know Abraham was a sinner. So the question is, you know, to, to, well, if God is just... Doesn't his justice demand judgment on that sin? Packer says this, God is not just, that is, he does not act in the way that is right, he does not do what is proper to judge, unless he inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. But it would seem like Abraham was justified and there had been yet no real penalty for sin. Which brings us back to Romans here, that that God had passed over former sins until the just punishment of those sins, the wrath they deserve, was put on Jesus on the cross. So Abraham's penalty, I think, and all the other penalties of sin of those of faith who are in the Old Testament um, comes back to the fulfilling of Christ. They were passed over until the time of Christ. I think the context of Romans 3 here is that redemption, propitiation are in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone for the Old Testament saint who looked, who looked forward 
to this promise. It was hazy. They looked forward to the promises of God, and they're counted righteous, even though there had not been a, a death per se yet of Christ. And yet we also we look back on this cross, that the cross is where it all comes together. And so the bulls and goats could not ultimately save. Only one name can save, Jesus Christ, the, the seed of the woman who had crushed Satan, and it's only by His blood. Okay, so... Consider then the cross. And this points to, I think, the cross points to God is just. Because sin must be punished, God is just in the forbearing of that sin until the cross. Think of the cross. Leon Morris brought this out. Picture the cross before us. Brought together this coming together then of grace and justice. All at the cross. It's the justice of God. How is He just? It's pouring out His cup of wrath for sin. Where is that poured out? On the Lamb, on Christ. And then, what do we see there as well? We see grace, the grace of God to initiate this same propitiation, the same work to provide for, through the eternal plan, this overcoming, this propitiation of sin that his own would come to him by faith. And so we see here what I pray. I pray in each of our hearts, including my own, that we would grow deeper and deeper for us to see the centrality of the cross of Christ. God's justice poured out and God's grace and mercy demonstrated there, all in this climactic event, the fullness of time when God sent forth his Son. So how can God be just righteous to to punish sin and and then how can the ungodly and the unrighteous one which is all of us how can we then be forever justified or declared righteous in the sight of god and it's the last part of verse 26 the one who has faith in jesus redemption grace forgiveness justification new life reconciliation, adoption of sons, our final glorification, it's all found in Jesus Christ plus nothing. There's a movie called The American Gospel. I'd encourage you to watch this. It perhaps, I think, is even free on YouTube. You can look it up called American Gospel. But it points out, one of the things it points out is the fallacy of of Roman Catholicism and any other works-based religion. That is that everything else is there's faith plus works. You do this, plus this equals this. This is faith in Christ alone. You've heard of maybe the solas of the Reformation. Faith alone, learn from the Scriptures alone, in Christ alone, by His grace alone, for the glory of God alone, these alones of the Reformation. This is faith in Christ alone. And flowing out of that faith, out of that is our good works that bear fruits of our faith in Christ. Christ. So Kevin DeYoung notes, he says, the great dilemma, therefore, of Scripture is not how could a good God judge sinners? That's not the great dilemma, is how could a good God judge sinners? The great dilemma is how could a holy God acquit sinners? How can God who is holy, how can he who must punish sin, how can he acquit? How can he make them not guilty? He says, many of us have a sense that 
justification is God just waking up and having a good God day. Just saying, your sins, forget about it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. They're forgiven. Don't, don't worry about it. He says that's to mistake God's mercy over judgment as simply one removing the specter of the others. No. Mercy triumphs over judgment because in God's mercy, the sacrifice of Christ is the satisfaction of that judgment. You hear what he's saying there? He says that's how God can be just even as he justifies the ungodly. Judgment and grace meet at the cross of Christ. As a song, I think Isaac Watts is the one, the wonderful cross. One of the verses said, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? But now. Can you begin to see, or hopefully you are refreshed again to see, that the wrath you and I deserve was poured out onto Christ on the cross as he made a propitiation for our sins? Do you see this price that was paid for our redemption? The justice that was poured out for you and me who are in sin alongside love. God demonstrates his love. Nothing the world has to offer will cleanse the guilty conscience, the truly guilty conscience before the Lord of the universe, before our Lord Almighty. Nothing will cleanse it. For those whom God has revealed your sin, there is nowhere else to go. There is no other name to be saved. No other blood will do. Encourage you. Repent of sin. Repent afresh. And fresh today, look by faith to this one, the dying lamb on the cross who now rose again and lives forever, exalted, and who intercedes and and is coming for us once again. Let's pray. Lord, I am thankful for big words that have great meanings. For redemption, for propitiation, and what these words of our language symbolize and represent of the reality of, of the death of Christ on the cross to take the curse upon himself that we might go free. It was not without cost. It was costly. Lord, may we not just flippantly look at our salvation as, as just God being, having a good, as you having a good God day. May we see what the price is that you paid on that cross And then look by you and go forward, Lord, without guilt, having been declared righteous, not of our own righteousness, but given by you. And so that forever your wrath is satisfied on the cross. And we may have fellowship with you. In your presence there is joy forever. May that be what we look forward to. And so we exalt Jesus Christ in having accomplished this on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, in your name.
You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.